If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14. We're going to begin with that intriguing topic I mentioned earlier of shaking the dust off of your feet. We saw this at the end of chapter 13. This is what Paul and Barnabas do as they're leaving Pisidian Antioch. And so I just want to talk about this. And briefly, what is it? This is a visible demonstration of something. Now, whether you were lifting your foot and wiping it with your hand or stooping to brush the dust off or maybe... I had the thought of, you know, the cat with the tape on your foot and you're just shaking. Um, This is a visible demonstration. And it's to be done in front of people. And not only is it visible, it is very serious. This is a demonstration of disgust. Uh, The person or persons that this is directed towards, they have done something So bad that you don't want to take their dirt with you. They have done something so bad that they have polluted the ground they've walked on. And so you want to shake your feet and be rid of any dust, any of their dust. We're about to read where the Lord Jesus says that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for the person or town who has this directed towards them. It's pretty serious that those notoriously wicked cities, it, it is, will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than for this person who uh, Paul and Barnabas do this towards. Uh, We see not only Paul and Barnabas do this, we see the the Lord Jesus himself command his disciples to do this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, Jesus says to do this. Now why? What would merit this serious public demonstration of disgust? Is this something you do when someone cuts you off in traffic? what, What would someone have to do? For you to not want to take their dirt with you. Well, there's only one thing. You can search the scriptures and you'll see uh, that there's just one thing. And it's important to know. Maybe some of you struggle with shame. Feel dirty. Maybe you feel like you pollute the ground you walk on. And your dust rightly deserves to be shaken off. It's important for you to know what Jesus says deserves this. Others of you, on the other hand, maybe you've been sinned against. Someone has hurt you. And you view that hurt. Um, It's easy for you to view their dust as polluted. It's important for you to know as well what Jesus says of this. So what is it? What's the one thing? It's not anger and violence. It's not betrayal and deceit and lying. It is not 
sexual sin. It is not addiction. It is not theft. What is it? It is contempt for the word of God. It is despising and rejecting the word of God. We see this. Remember, Jesus, he sends out his 12 in Matthew chapter 10. And he tells them to go to the Jews, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim to them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus says, and if anyone will not receive you, Or listen to your words. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The one thing in Scripture where Jesus says, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. It's when bringers of the gospel are not received. He says, shake off the dust. That's the one thing, the one thing that earns this severe sign. And of course, I'm thinking about the one thing. It reminded me of the one unforgivable sin. And so I just wanted to look at this connection. Remember, the one unforgivable sin. What is it? It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's it's essentially this. But we're given a great illustration by Jesus. I don't know if you remember, Jesus heals a crippled man's hand. This man has a withered hand. Jesus heals it. It's clearly healed, and what do the Pharisees do? They say, God didn't do that. Satan did. That wasn't the power of God that healed that withered hand. That was the power of the devil. They are attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And this is willful, intentional Refusing to submit to God and His Word. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're persuaded of the Spirit's power and of who Christ is, the Son of God, and we reject it. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this is the response, shaking the dust off of your feet. You hear the word. You will not submit. You will not repent. You will not believe. And your heart becomes hardened to the point where you are no longer capable of repentance. And instead, you attribute the clear work of God to the evil one. That's what happened in Pisidian Antioch. The crowds gathered to hear Paul preach. But the Jews in that town begin to contradict his words and undermine his words and twist them. And they begin to revile and and blaspheme. Paul says that they thrust the word of God aside. And then they incite the people to drive Paul and Barnabas out. And so Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet. 
and go elsewhere. Where did they go? To Iconium and then Lystra. And that's what we're going to look at this week. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that there is power in your word and that your spirit works through the proclamation of your word. And so we beseech you to work this morning within the hearts of your people. Would your spirit cultivate faith within them? Would your spirit nourish that faith that the union between your people and your son might be tied even tighter. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read our text, Acts chapter 14. I'll start in verse 1 and read to verse 18. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, into the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, crying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Well, Paul and Barnabas are at Iconium and you begin to notice a pattern. Wherever there is a synagogue, they go to the synagogue and they proclaim uh, Christ crucified and then there is division. Uh, There's both saving faith and also persecution and unbelief that arises. Uh, This is what we see in Iconium. They go to the synagogue. That was their modus operandi. And there, we're told one result is that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. A great number of people came to saving faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit worked a miracle in their hearts, penetrating the darkness, making them new creations. And we know this to be true because as not only does it say it in uh, Uh, Not only does Luke write it here in verse 14, but as Paul, uh, this first missionary journey is kind of out and back. Uh, They'll go from Pisidian Antioch, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and then they go back to all the cities they've been to before. And as they travel back, they encourage a prospering church. So that's one result, belief. Another predictable Result is persecution. We see the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Not only that, after a period of time, it was discovered that there was a plot to stone Paul and Barnabas. They're saving faith and also division, persecution, and Attempted murder or plans to attempt murder. What we should not be surprised by is that the word of God always causes division. We live in a day and age where we despise division. We want everyone to get along. We want everyone to be happy. No one to be offended. Uh, We want to cater to the needs of everyone so that uh, there's... No disagreements. And yet we see that it is inevitable that when we are faithful to the gospel, there will be division. Whenever a light is brought into a dark place, the light will cause things to grow. And the light will also expose the things that are there inhabiting the darkness. And usually those things inhabiting the darkness don't appreciate the light. So we should not be divided when, we should not be surprised when we encounter division. It was here in Iconium, but it was a good thing. Paul and Barnabas were told, despite the division, uh, stay in Iconium. We're told for a long time in verse 3, speaking boldly for the Lord. They bore witness to the word of his grace. They even did signs and wonders. We'll talk more about those in a second. And it's not until the attempted stoning or this plot that they flee. It's reached a point in the city where they could not continue their ministry. So they depart Iconium and head down the road towards Lystra and Derby, where they continued to preach the gospel. Now, verse 6, I want to spend a little bit of time here. This has been a very controversial verse over the years. Let's look at it again. Verse 6. 
They learned of it, the, the plot of stoning, and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia. Does that sound controversial to you? As I said, it's been a verse of much controversy over the years, and it stems from this. Luke says that these two cities are in Lyconia. That's an ancient Roman province. But historians, archaeologists, when studying this area in Turkey and looking at uh, the ancient boundary markers, see that those boundary markers run between Lystra and Derby. So they say these, these weren't in the same province. Luke was wrong. It can't be trusted. Now, this is one example of uh, something that 19th century liberal theologians just had an absolute heyday with. Uh, they would point at this. Luke says that these two cities are in the same province. Uh, history says they weren't. Luke can't be trusted. Uh, the Bible isn't reliable. It's not without error. It's not infallible. You can't trust it. And they, they get a kick out of this. Some of the most miserable people on this planet are, are those tenured professors who have lots of PhDs and work at prestigious colleges, universities, and seminaries and, and spend their entire time trying to nitpick and identify every seeming inconsistency in Scripture. They make a career out of it. But I, I want you to see, and I'm going to show you, I'm spending so much time on this, because Luke was not wrong. And the Bible can be trusted. And I'll explain it in a way that you Corinthians will understand. Who here has driven through Jacinto? Okay. A few of us. All right. Last April. No. April of 2020, like the initial quarantine, like when Cope, when the first wave got here. April of 2020. Molly and I and the girls, we were wanting to get out of the house. We loaded up in the car. We got on 45, went south to the turnoff to Rienzi. We just wanted to see a part of the county we'd never seen before. Drove through Rienzi. Kept going all the way to Jacinto. Stopped at the courthouse. Got out, walked around. And then we kept going and went all the way up to Glen, and we just made a big loop through Alcorn County. Now, would I be correct if I told you that Jacinto is the county seat of Tishomingo County? Right? No. What's the county seat of Tishomingo County today? It's Iuka. It is Iuka, Mississippi. Now... So I would be wrong if I said Jacinto was the county seat of Tishomingo County. Now, what if we found a newspaper prior to 1870? We got in the archives. We found a newspaper from 1860, 1865, and there was mention in that newspaper of Jacinto being the county seat of Tishomingo County. Is that newspaper wrong? No. Because prior to 1870... It, Y'all are getting whole history. Prior to 1870, there was one large Tishomingo County, and Jacinto was the county seat. Now, after 1870, they took it and sliced it up into Tishomingo County and Alcorn County and Prentice County. 
But prior to 1870, Jacinto was the county seat. What happened was that boundary lines change over time. And this is what happened in uh, this, this controversial verse. There are ancient boundary markers that show that these two cities at one point were not in the same province. But there's also archaeological evidence showing that at the time Luke was writing Acts, they were. The man who discovered this was a guy named Sir William Ramsey. He was a Scottish man. He was a theologian and archaeologist. He traveled around Turkey retracing Paul's steps And uh, he had an interest in this. And by the way, he didn't come from an evangelical background. He came from uh, the theological liberal background, assuming that there were some things in Luke's writing that was problematic. You can read his book, St. Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen. You can read that book and read how he found the uh, foundations or how how these markers were moved and how he was convinced of the veracity of Scripture. That when Luke was writing Acts, when Paul was on this first missionary journey, these two towns were, in fact, in the same province. And I just go through all that just to renew your confidence in the Word of God. And that there may be some issues that we do not have an answer for right now, but that issue may become clear 20 years down the road. The issue in God's providence may never become clear. But yet what we've seen over the years is that the Bible absolutely can be trusted and Luke is the most accurate historical scholar of the first century. We can trust in his word. So, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. It's a backwater town, not very cosmopolitan. It's got an Old West feel to it. People were uneducated. They spoke the common language uh, Greek, but also had their own native tongue, Lyconian. There was no synagogue. And what we see is a man, a man who was crippled from birth. He never walked. And Paul enters this town and he begins to speak and this man is sitting there listening to him. Paul makes eye contact with him. And and he saw in this man's eyes that the Spirit was working. Uh, The interest that he had in the Word of God was seen. And so Paul heals him. Paul says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. Now, we're told that they did signs and wonders previously in Iconium. This is obviously a sign and wonder in Lystra. And it's important to remember why they're doing this. Why God is working through them in this way. And what he is doing is authenticating the message. You and I have... The scriptures. We have the canon of scripture. It has been closed. 
we, we have it in full. We have no need uh, for signs or wonders. But it was not so in the early church. And the uh, Holy Spirit worked through the apostles in incredible ways. And this was one of them. You remember uh, John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus one night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. See, the Jews understood this. These signs prove that God is with you, that you have come from God. And so that's why Paul and Barnabas are doing these signs and wonders as well. Now, let's look at the crowd's reaction. Are they like Nicodemus? Does this crowd say, oh, these men must be teachers from God because of these signs? No. They say, these men must be gods. We see in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. They don't think Paul and Barnabas are teachers from God. They think they are gods themselves. There might be some helpful Greek mythology to point out here. Uh, There's a story from Greek mythology that concerns Zeus and Hermes. Uh, They descended from Mount Olympus and they disguised themselves as human beings just kind of on like a Santa Claus mission. They were going to check up and make sure, see who was being naughty and who was being nice. And they wanted to investigate the friendliness and hospitality of the locals. And what they found is that the majority of the people did not give them the time of day. No one welcomed these strangers into their homes. No one offered to feed them. No one offered them anything to drink. No one offered them a place to stay. And finally, Zeus and Hermes find one elderly couple. And this elderly couple is said to have welcomed them in and what little they had gave to them and gave them something to eat and drink and a bed to sleep in. And then the next day, Zeus reveals himself. And takes this elderly couple up on top of a mountain. And on top of the mountain, he, he uh, causes this massive storm uh, to come up. And there's a flood that floods the entire valley. And all of these just mean, unfriendly, unhospitable people are washed away in the flood. And then Zeus rewards this elderly couple by changing their shack into a mansion with a golden roof. Apparently, this story took place close to where Paul and Barnabas were traveling. So we can explain their reaction. They didn't want to get on Zeus's bad side. They didn't want to be washed away. They wanted to be very hospitable and friendly because, you know, in Greek mythology, gods come down all the time to interact with people. You think of Homer's Odyssey. Odysseus is just trying to get home from the Trojan War and these gods either keep helping or hindering him on his journey home. That's what they believe. They're in Lystra. Gods have come among them. You have the taller, more 
regal Barnabas. He must be Zeus. And then Paul is the the short, gifted speaker. He must be Hermes, the, the spokesman of the gods. That's what they're thinking. All the while, Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's going on because they're jabbering excitedly in their own native tongue. And Paul and Barnabas remain clueless until they see a priest of Zeus walking towards them, bringing an oxen, bringing garlands, everything they would need to offer a sacrifice because they're going to honor the gods rightly. It's funny the difference. Paul and Barnabas had been kicked out of the last two cities because they were seen as heretics. And now they're about to be worshipped as gods. And yet all three are schemes of Satan to hinder the spread of the gospel. Well, what was Paul and Barnabas' response to this? Abject horror. In verse 14, when the apostles heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. They're horrified that they would even do this. They tore their garments. You know, tearing your garments is another powerful public expression. It's one of grief. Ripping your garments marked a tragic situation, usually death or something shocking or something shameful. You remember Reuben tore his clothes when he found out his brothers had sold Joseph into slavery? A few days later, when Jacob is holding the coat of many colors that's been slashed and covered in blood and he's been lied to and told that his son was killed by a wild animal, he tears his garments. Job rips his garments when he hears about the death of his children. David tears his garments when he hears that Saul and Jonathan were killed. Gives you some idea of the weight behind this action. Paul is not being melodramatic here. This is very serious. And we see him rush into the middle of the crowd and cry out and begins a simple sermon to these pagans. This is a very different sermon because he's speaking to very different people. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We aren't gods. I'm not Hermes. This isn't Zeus. We're men, mortals, just like you. And and, and we aren't here to test your hospitality. We're here to bring you good news. Good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Turn from these vain things. Turn from trusting in these false gods to the living God. You know, in Greek mythology, they had gods and goddesses for everything. Now, I think... I mean, Hinduism has more gods than Greek mythology. Hindu has, Hinduism has millions of gods. Uh, but Greek mythology, yeah, I mean, there are lots of different... Zeus is the king of the gods. Uh, Poseidon is the god of the sea. Ares, the god of war. 
Apollo, the god of the sun. Dionysus is the god of wine and revelry. I mean, you could just go, go down the list. And Paul here is saying, turn from those vain things. These, these false gods that have been assigned to all of these different aspects of creation, why don't you turn to the one who made all of creation? Turn to the one who is sufficient to meet every human need and every human experience. We aren't gods. We're messengers of the one God. And despite this, we're told that they scarcely stopped them from offering this sacrifice. Now, we could look at this and think, how primitive. Those poor, uneducated pagans with their gods and goddesses. But we are not so different. How often do you look to vain things for comfort and hope? instead of turning to the living and eternal God. Now, the list of how we do this is inexhaustible, but especially with our context this morning, there's a couple examples I want to point to. We'll pick on Roman Catholicism first. You know, just as the Greeks had gods and goddesses for most of life's situations, Roman Catholicism has created a pantheon of saints to whom you can pray to for whatever life situation you're in. I I remember Molly working at a Catholic high school. They came over the intercom one morning. Someone had lost their keys. And they said, could everyone pray to St. Anthony? St. Anthony is the patron saint of lost things. Pray to St. Anthony that this person might find their keys. We're to turn from these vain things. Maybe it's easy for us Reformed Presbyterians to pick on Roman Catholics, but what about us red-blooded Americans You know, you can travel to D.C. and see beautiful shrines and memorials to the heroes of our nation. The heroes whose ideology, you know, if we could just get back, if we could get back there, then everything would be right. And that's where we can put our hope and trust. And interestingly enough, you can go in the Capitol building in D.C. and go underneath the rotunda and look up. You know what? Y'all familiar with this? You look up and there's a painting on the ceiling of the Capitol. It's a painting called The Apotheosis of George Washington. You know what apotheosis means? Deification. Becoming God. Washington is being lifted up on the clouds to join the gods and goddesses who live on Mount Olympus. It, It... We, John Calvin was right, we, our our hearts are idol factories. We can turn anything and everything into an idol that we look to for hope, for joy, for security and comfort. 
We worship those things and view them as God instead of turning to the true and living God. We are no different from these Lyconians. We aren't satisfied with the true and living God, so we worship and serve creation rather than creator. I'll end with this. We're about to come to the Lord's table. And in coming to this table, we remember that there was one time in which God did put on human flesh and God did come down from glory and dwell with his people. But it is not Greek mythology. It's not Christian mythology. It's a historical event that Jesus Christ The true and living God came down from heaven, lived on this earth, humbled himself. And unlike Zeus and Hermes, who came to be served, Jesus Christ came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to look to Jesus as our only trust, as our only hope, our only assurance, and turn away from the vain things we look to in worship. Father, reveal the idols dwelling in plain sight in our lives. Father, calls us to turn from them to you, trusting in you and worshiping you in spirit and in truth as you have commanded in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.